This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 14th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, Hannah Armitage talks with Sarah Crespi about the latest online news stories, and then we'll hear from Asif Gazanfar about vocal development in marmoset monkeys. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Hannah Armitage. She's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the dangers of carnivorous humans. Are you a vegetarian, Hannah? No, I'm not. Me neither. And, you know, the next study that we're going to talk about kind of makes me feel like I should jump on the veggie bandwagon. It takes a detailed look at the effects of meat eating on the environment. What aspects are they focusing on here? They're looking at the impacts of human carnivory on land use and how it threatens a lot of the world's plants and animals. Specifically, they're focusing on the effects of clearing more land for livestock and crops to feed these animals. So they looked at how farming animals affects other animals on the planet. How is that different from earlier studies that have looked at the environmental impacts of raising livestock? Studies in the past have explored links between modern livestock production and climate change or water pollution or the loss of some herbivores and top predators. But now this study is looking at the impacts of livestock on other species, particularly in habitats that are really rich in species like tropical areas. Yeah. So the researchers identified biodiversity hotspots, as they call them, for the study. What do they discover about the future of farming and non-food species in these countries? They found that many of the places expected to see the biggest shift in land use for livestock are in 15 mega-diverse countries. And mega-diverse means these countries have some of the largest numbers of species. The scientists predict that by 2050, with current trends, these countries will likely increase the land use for livestock by 30 to 50 percent, which is about 3 million square kilometers. It sounds like diversity is going to be sacrificed to the needs of 
the animals that we eat and the food that the animals that we eat eats. Is the recommendation from these authors to stop eating meat? No, it's not necessarily that they're saying we have to stop eating meat, but they are recommending that people limit their meat consumption to 10% of calories. They suggest eating more fruits and vegetables and replacing beef, especially because it's the most land-hungry meat. And they say instead that we should eat pork or chicken or fish. Next up, we have a story on how much people trust their Internet search results. This is one of those studies that just surprised the heck out of me. The researchers are using words like mind control to describe the effect of the Internet on how people vote. What effect are they talking about, Hannah? In this case, researchers have found that when a search engine returns results on political candidates, the higher a politician ranks on a page, the more likely you are to vote for them. Okay, so how much more likely? What kind of numbers are we talking about here? In their first experiment, recruited people who were generally representative of the U.S. voting population. It was about 300 or so people, so a smaller study. They wanted to know if they could influence the voters for an election for prime minister of Australia. They found that in a rigged search result, undecided voters favored the candidate that was biased by 48%. And by biased, you mean appeared much closer to the top of the page. Right, exactly. This was the real knockout for me. If they knew there was a bias in the results, what happened then? They actually saw that the bias was even more prominent. The researchers were explaining that we expect the search engine to be making the wise choice. So when people knew that there was a bias for the search result, they were even more likely to vote for the candidate that was at the top of the page. They also did a much larger experiment with many more participants, 2,100 people, all pretending to vote in an election. How did that work out? The larger study really allowed them to see what groups of people could possibly be more influenced. And they found that the most vulnerable to the search engine manipulation were divorcees, Republicans, and subjects who reported low familiarity with the candidates. So that seems key. If people didn't know anything about the candidates, maybe they were more likely to be undecided and more likely to vote based on their search results. To get at this idea that being informed about the candidates may have an effect on the search result bias, um, the researchers took real candidates and real voters and ran them through the experiment. Did they see a similar magnitude of the effect? No. So they saw that using real candidates actually decreased the magnitude of the effect, although the effect was still there. So the bias still swayed the undecided voters in the direction of the favored candidate. In the first experiment, it actually showed that it would increase the likelihood of undecided voters to vote for the biased candidate by 48%. But when they were using real candidates, the increase in likelihood that undecided voters would pick the favored candidate was only 12%. If the influence of the search result bias shrinks in real-life situations where the voters know something about the candidates, is this something that democracies really need to worry about? It still is. The authors point out that elections are a lot of the times won by margins that are smaller than 1%. So they give an example. They say if 80% of eligible voters have Internet access and 10% of them are undecided, the search engine effect could convince an additional 25% of those undecided to vote for a candidate favored by the search results. They go on to say that this is such a huge effect that it could be dangerous for democracy. Lastly, we have a story on evolving ant-like robots. 
The evolution of behavior is very difficult to study. The records of past behaviors are usually missing from fossils or even genomes. One way to get around this issue is to start from scratch. In this study, the researchers started with a small population of robots modeled on ants. Hannah, why ants? Ants are one of the insects that have this complex social behavior where different groups of individuals can specialize in different tasks. In what ways did the robots in this study resemble ants? The robots here mimic leafcutter ants, which are masters of organization and cooperation. And they basically cut up leaf fragments to make their own food. When these ants forage in forests, they're kind of split into groups. So some are the droppers, which means they climb into the trees and cut the leaves, and they drop the leaves down to the forest floor. And some are collectors, and they collect the leaves and bring them back to the nest. Here, they designed the robots to resemble those two roles. They had one robot who would go up a ramp and collect blocks, which were representative of leaves. And then they had some other robots that would take the leaves or the blocks and bring them back to the nest. And when we say they were robots, what we really mean in this case is that there are simulations of robots, right? Right. There were two main experiments in the study. Let's talk about the first one, where they gave these specific roles to different robots. What happened over the course of generations? So first, researchers pre-programmed the robots to either be droppers, collectors, or generalists. And generalists were robots that could do both drop or collect. And they basically compared all possible combinations of droppers to collectors to generalists in different environments. The computer kept tabs on how efficient foraging was and optimized the ratio. And what about when the robots started altogether as generalists? So when they first started, the robots really didn't know what they were doing. So they'd kind of bumble around and pick up a block and put it down and not really take it anywhere. But they saw that over hundreds of generations, they started evolving into pretty efficient generalists. So they were able to get the block and bring it back. After thousands of generations, they saw that robots started evolving into these specific roles. They could be droppers or they could be collectors. And the researchers thought this was really important because they were able to develop different behaviors socially and cooperatively. There are a few important differences between these robots and ants or other organisms. For example, the robots are all identical genetically, if you will. Is it likely that these simplifications had an influence on the result of the study? Some scientists are concerned that because the robots are all genetically identical, it's too basic to base conclusions on about how these processes might work in a biological world. One of the researchers has a concern that if you constrain the evolutionary process too much, you really only get out what you put in. Okay, Hannah, what else is on the site this week? This week, we have surprising octopus genomes and a 3D tour of the central nervous system. And on Science Insider, we have news on animal advocacy groups targeting cat and dog research using a novel crowdsourcing campaign. And also, new goals for the U.S. Antarctic program. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Sarah. Hannah Armitage is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Our complex language skills are one of the characteristics that set us apart from other primates. 
But are monkeys, apes, and other related species born with the ability to produce all of their calls, or do social interactions shape them too? In a report this week, Asif Gazanfar and his team looked at baby marmoset monkeys to find out. I'm Suzanne Bard. Asif, how do primates and marmosets in particular use their vocalizations, and are there any parallels to how we communicate as humans? Yeah, there are parallels, but there are also a lot of differences. They don't use their vocalizations in the way that we do. They're not, for example, producing sounds and describing what's going on in their environment or what they did earlier in their day or what they had for lunch or anything like that. In general, it's not thought that they're using them in the way that has any meaning or any syntax. But there are parallels in the practical ways that they produce sounds and how they respond to them. So, for example, in marmoset monkeys, when they're out of sight with one another, they're kind of maintaining contact with each other where one marmoset is producing a call called a fee call, and the other marmoset who hears it produces their own fee calls. And by doing that, they say, listen, I understand that you're away from me and out of sight, and that's a way to kind of modulate their stress level so they're not feeling like they're all alone. There's basically information about who the caller is, maybe information about how big the caller is, how old the caller is, the location of the caller. That's information that's in that call that the marmosets can extract. And that's also the case for human vocalizations. We have cues embedded in our vocalizations that tell us you know, how old somebody is. So you probably can make an assessment listening to my voice about my gender, how old I am, et cetera, et cetera. And what's been the conventional wisdom about how primates other than humans develop their vocalizations? The conventional wisdom for about the last 50 years is that for non-human primates, for monkeys and great apes, that there isn't much development of their vocalizations. It was generally thought that when primates are born, that they're already able to produce all the vocalizations that they're ever going to need for the rest of their lives and that those vocalizations already sound very adult-like. So the assumption has largely been that primate vocal development is something that's quote-unquote innate, that there's no involvement of experience. And kind of related to that, people would suggest, well, if you do see any change in their vocalizations, those changes are very subtle and can just be related to the fact that the animal is growing up and getting bigger, subtle changes that are simply related to the growth of the animal. And vocal development in primates has always been assumed to be impervious to social feedback. That is, listening to another individual doesn't help or facilitate in any way the development of primate vocalizations. And what gave you the idea to question the conventional wisdom, Asif? Marmoset monkeys, in terms of how they care for their young, it's very different from most primates and very similar to how humans do. And what I mean by that is that both parents, for example, help care for offspring in the marmoset monkey kind of reproductive strategy. And even older siblings and non-relatives will help care for young infants in a marmoset group. And that's very, very special among primate species. Marmosets exhibit this kind of strategy, and humans exhibit this kind of strategy. Chimpanzees don't exhibit the strategy, macaque monkeys don't exhibit this strategy. So that was one kind of cool feature of the marmoset monkey. And the other cool feature about marmoset monkeys is that they're always talking to each other. So they're using vocalizations much more so than the typical primate. 
that combination of having a similar kind of reproductive strategy as humans and the fact that they're using vocalizations quite a bit motivated us to kind of re-examine this question about the nature of primate vocal development. In addition, we thought that what we could do is improve upon the methods. So one of the things that we noticed in the older literature was kind of a neglect of the fact that non-human primates like monkeys develop much, much faster than humans do. Okay, so marmosets, for example, develop 12 times faster than a human does. If you really want to understand how something is developing in marmoset behavior, you really have to start sampling whatever it is you want to sample very, very early in their life, and you need to sample very, very densely. So you need to sample you know, more than just every other week. Otherwise, you're going to miss the developmental change. So putting it all together, the fact that marmosets are these cooperative breeders, that they exchange vocalizations, and the fact that now we can very densely and carefully sample the changes in their vocalizations created an ideal situation to figure out, well, how do these vocalizations change over time? So in your study, you recorded the vocalizations made by baby marmosets and tracked their vocal development from birth until they were two months old. How would you characterize their earliest calls versus the calls they make a few months later? What we found was pretty remarkable. We were expecting, based on the 50 previous years of work, that the changes in marmoset vocalizations would be subtle. In fact, what we found is that the changes were very dramatic. So if you're listening to the vocalizations that they produce on their first postnatal day, that is the first day after they're born, they're producing a whole bunch of different sounds, right? So they're producing things that sound noisy. They're producing things that sound like bona fide marmoset monkey calls. And they're producing all these sounds all at once in kind of like a babbling-like sequence. Okay, let's listen to what that sounds like. But by the time they reach two months of age, they're producing a single call type, this contact call called a fee call, which is the same call that the adult marmosets use to maintain auditory contact with one another. So by two months of age, they produce this single call type as opposed to the many different call types that they produce on their first postnatal day. The other thing that we notice is that all those different calls that they produce on postnatal day one, a subset of them actually seemed like immature versions of that contact call that they produce exclusively at two months of age. And that was something that nobody had ever kind of put together, that you could have these calls that seemed noisy and seem, didn't seem anything like adult calls, that they could be like immature versions of another call type. Okay, so let's listen to the difference between postnatal day one and two months later. Here's day one. And this is two months later. We then went on to investigate and show empirically that those other kind of weird sounding calls were in fact immature versions of the adult contact call known as the fee call. Interesting. So 
You then looked at the influence of the marmoset baby's parents on their vocal development. How did their parents figure into the equation? In humans, even when infants are producing cries or babbling sounds, parents are often kind of, without realizing it, providing responses contingently, almost like they're having these fake conversations with their infants. And these contingent responses reinforce the production of those sounds by those infants. And that reinforcement then helps accelerate the development of their vocalizations. So we're showing that these dramatic changes in the marmoset vocalizations occur over the course of development. So that's kind of what brought us to the experiment where we paired them with their parents to see how patterns of vocal interactions between the parent and the infant may influence how quickly the infant marmoset transitions from producing all these immature sounding calls to this single contact fee call that they produce by two months of age. So what we did is we had a infant marmoset in one corner of the room and then either the mother or the father in the other corner of the room and they were separated by a black curtain that you could hear through. And then we kind of quantified their vocal interactions and then we analyzed how often did a parent produce a contingent response upon hearing a infant's call, a call that sounded as close to possible as one of these adult fee calls. And what we notice is that those infants whose parents called back most often were the infants who more quickly went through the transition from producing immature calls to the mature fee call. And those infants whose parents didn't respond that often took the longest. So that's very in line with what we know about early human vocal development, that social feedback from parents or other caregivers accelerates and facilitates vocal development in human infants. Your results seem to contradict conventional wisdom that calls are innate, in marmosets at least. But you also mentioned that marmosets are kind of special in their parenting and their use of vocalizations. Does your study change the way we should be thinking about primate vocal development? Yeah, so one of the things that we should change is like we shouldn't treat all primates as though they're the same, right? If you discover something in marmoset monkeys, it doesn't mean it's going to be the same in squirrel monkeys or macaque monkeys or even chimpanzees. The way monkeys use their vocalizations and how those vocalizations develop is kind of linked to their overall life history strategy. That is how they grow up and their interactions with their parents and other group members. So there's not a kind of a one-size-fits-all phenomenon here, which is kind of the mode that we've been operating on for the last 50 years or so. So what's important for us is that we think by demonstrating this, a really great model system for investigating kind of the biology of early vocal development that could potentially lead to insights for understanding human vocal development. But it also kind of indicates that we need to kind of look more carefully and more quantitatively at vocal development in other species. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Asif. Thank you so much. Nice chatting with you, Suzanne. Asif Gazanfar and colleagues write about vocal development in baby marmoset monkeys this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. 
On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. Thank you.